listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter, at Ellis A. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or HiddenHistory.show and learn something new today. But one quick thing before I close out the intro. If you've been listening to the show for a while, or this is your first episode and you just happened to glance at the title, you've probably realized that this is episode 50, which is a pretty huge deal for me. This show wouldn't be possible without listeners like you, and thanks to your continual support of Hidden History, what started as a radio show that only my parents listened to has turned into a program with thousands of listeners across the globe. Hidden History listeners are everywhere from Egypt to Finland, from Brazil to Vietnam. I want to thank each and every one of you for supporting the show and helping to build it into what it is today. I hope that you will stay a part of our community for the next 50 episodes, and the 50 after that, and the 50 after that. Together, little by little, we can work towards making education accessible and engaging. Now, let's get to that episode. In last week's episode, I talked about economic mercantilism and the rise of unions through the 1835 GTU strike. Though I said that organized labor would not be a permanent fixture of American life until the 1880s, the episode ended on a relative high note, as the Philadelphia General Strike was overwhelmingly successful and completely peaceful. This, unfortunately, isn't the standard for early strikes. And so today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the reaction to the labor movement and anti-union violence in the United States. Buckle up. This is going to be a long one. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 50. Workmen do not beg. They demand. While the Panic of 1837 effectively killed the General Trades Union in cities across America, it wouldn't be long before more labor movements rose in its place. The existence of the 1865 Upper Peninsula Miner Strike in Marquette, Michigan, and the 1873 Coal Miner Strike throughout Pennsylvania and Ohio proves as much. But something else would also happen in 1873 that would yet again undo the gains of the labor movement. It was called the Mint Act, and it removed the United States from the bimetallic standard. That is to say, the U.S. no longer valued its currency in terms of gold and silver, instead only issuing currency in accordance with the value of gold reserves. This legislation had two major effects. The first was a compounding contraction in American monetary supply. The amount of physical currency in circulation became significantly lower, which in turn discouraged spending and decreased something called monetary velocity, which is the amount of times that a unit of currency purchases a good within a given period. A high monetary velocity means that purchases are occurring more often. The second major effect was a dramatic fall in silver prices at a time when silver production, and just as importantly, investment in silver production, was increasing rapidly. The primary market for silver, the U.S. Mint, was no longer buying. It turned out that the market for silver was a bubble, and the Mint Act of 1873 made it pop. 
By the autumn of that year, the Panic of 1873 helped solidify the tenure of a period that would later become known as the Long Depression, which lasted from 1873 to 1879. After the end of the Long Depression, America encouraged recovery through the rapid industrialization of northern cities. One of these places was Chicago. A fire in 1871 had destroyed vast swaths of the city, which meant that the Chicago of the 1880s was comparatively different from other U.S. cities at the time. The rebuilding effort meant that the industrialization of Chicago could occur at a much faster rate and reach much higher levels of saturation. Owing to the city's status as the most important rail hub in the Midwest, it became the home of a great many industries focused around logistics and the preparation of goods. The most infamous of these was Chicago's meatpacking industry, which would later be the subject of Upton Sinclair's landmark book, The Jungle. Meatpacking, along with a number of other industries such as lumber processing, employed tens of thousands of immigrants, primarily Central Europeans. They worked 10 hours a day, six days a week, for the whopping wage of $1.50 per day, or 15 cents an hour. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $3.75. As you can probably imagine, workers weren't too keen on this, and a great number of socialist and anarchist organizations utilized that discontent to build militant factions, the aims of which were to bring about an economic revolution through the seizure of important industrial facilities. That I'm going to talk about in a little bit, and not in the context of this specific scenario. The organizations that I instead want to focus on here are the Knights of Labor and the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. The Knights and the FOTLU were bitter rivals and often worked behind the scenes to sabotage one another. The Knights were born out of the labor struggles of the Long Depression and maintained the goal, like the General Trade Union of the 1830s, of creating solidarity between all laborers, skilled or unskilled. The FOTLU, in a way, was the result of a schism within the Knights of Labor, and was founded in 1881 by an amalgamation of independent unions, tradesmen, and former assemblies of the Knights. Its founder, Samuel Gompers, envisioned the FOTLU as a union for skilled laborers only, which caused many former members of the Knights of Labor to immediately withdraw from the new union. The Federation never saw a great amount of success with its organizing efforts, even though it advocated for progressive goals such as the abolition of child labor, mandatory childhood education, ventilation and safety standards in mines, and the abolition of forced labor by convicts. The Knights of Labor, on the other hand, were massively successful, especially so in newly industrialized cities like Chicago. Between 1884 and 1886, the membership rolls of the Knights of Labor surged from 100,000 to 800,000, nearly 20% of all union-eligible workers in the entire country. Though the two were bitter rivals, the Knights and the Federation were able to see on the same side of some issues. One of these was the establishment of the eight-hour workday. In 1884, the FOTLU set the deadline for the mass adoption of the eight-hour day to May 1st, 1886. If the day was not standardized by that date, then the union would call a general strike. The Knights of Labor also supported the eight-hour day, though actively attempted to sabotage the Federation's call for a general strike by quietly telling its members not to participate. Worker solidarity, however, won out over individual union loyalties, 
and huge numbers of knights said that they would take part in the strike. May 1st, 1886 came, and along with it came a general strike across the country involving between 300 and 500,000 workers. Chicago was the beating heart of the strike, with approximately 40,000 workers joining the picket line. The air was filled with chants of eight-hour day, no cut in pay. Almost immediately, things began to escalate. On May 3rd, police fired on nonviolent protesters at the McCormick Harvester plant, killing two. In response to these murders, workers organized further, rallying strikers to assemble in Chicago's Haymarket Square the next day. The first prints of the rally posters called for working men to, quote, arm yourselves and appear in full force. These words were removed at the demand of August Spees, the editor of the radical newspaper Workers' Times. He was the rally's most important speaker, and if the call for violence remained, he would refuse to speak. The flyers were almost immediately reprinted. All but a few of the first iteration were taken down and destroyed. The next day, a crowd ranging between several hundred and several thousand assembled in the Haymarket. Spees pressed the importance of nonviolence to the people before him. Following his address, Albert Parsons, the editor of another radical newspaper, spoke to the crowd for over an hour. The crowd gathered in the Haymarket was calm and had already begun to disperse on account of poor weather. Sam Fielden, an anarchist and organizer, was the last to take the stage. He spoke for only a handful of minutes to the placid and dwindling crowd. Then, at 10.30 p.m., a massive formation of police arrived and ordered the crowd to immediately desist and disperse. Suddenly, from somewhere in the Haymarket, a bomb flew. It was filled with dynamite and covered in a hard metal case. It exploded directly in front of the mass of police, instantly killing one officer and wounding several others. After this, reports get a little bit sketchy. Some say that the crowd, which had been told not to come armed, began firing into the wall of policemen. Some say that the officers began shooting members of the fleeing crowd in the back, reloaded, and continued firing. There is no objective account of what happened at the Haymarket Massacre. Nobody knows who threw the bomb or who started shooting. All we know is that it resulted in the deaths of four protesters and the injury of more than 70, as well as the deaths of seven police officers and the injury of 60 more. Some historians claim that due to the confusion and the dark of the night, a number of police officers shot their own men by mistake. The city of Chicago was quick to lay blame on German and Bohemian immigrants, and for the following eight weeks used illegal tactics to arrest them and raid their homes and meeting places, all without warrants. The workers pointed fingers at the Pinkertons, a notorious detective agency infamous for its anti-union sabotage. In the court of public opinion, however, the workers had already lost even before the police found any suspects. The Knights of Labor completely disavowed anarchists and violent tactics, but it was too late. By 1890, membership would plummet to only 100,000. Chicago authorities tried eight men in connection with the Haymarket bombing. They had no definitive proof that any of them were involved, but that didn't prevent every one of them from being convicted. Seven were sentenced to death and one was sentenced to 15 years. Four of the men had their death sentences actually carried out, one of whom was August Spees, the newspaper editor who had so vehemently called for nonviolence. 
There was never any evidence to support the convictions that followed the massacre, and so the prosecutors relied on the existing socialist and anarchist writings of the defendants to paint them as anti-government terrorists. Though the date of the trial sets it outside the historical boundaries of the period, the trial itself has a great deal in common with the kangaroo courts of the first Red Scare, uh, which lasted from 1917 to 1920, and which I'm going to talk about later. This will not be the last time we see a court convict potentially radical immigrants in spite of a lack of evidence. That means, yes, there's more to talk about. The day after the Haymarket bombing, a strike in Bayview, a neighborhood of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, reached a boiling point. This, too, was a strike in support of the eight-hour day. Under pressure from organized labor, the city of Milwaukee had passed a law legislating the workday as eight hours, but there was no penalty for violation. The law might as well have not passed to begin with. The strike began on May 4th, with the organization of 7,000 construction workers and 5,000 general laborers through the Knights of Labor. The crowd started out as only a few hundred, but as workers marched from factory to factory, thousands more put down their tools and joined the ranks. By the following day, more had joined the cause, bringing the total to 14,000. Every factory in the city had been shut down due to the strike except for one. So on the morning of May 5th, workers and their families began to march on the rolling mill foundry at the Milwaukee Ironworks. They were met by 250 Wisconsin National Guardsmen who were under orders to open fire if any strikers entered the mill. The National Guard didn't wait, and when the laborers were in sight, they raised their rifles and shot to kill. Seven people died that day, including a 13-year-old boy. The number of injured remains unknown. One of the things that some people who were unassociated with the labor movement found odd was the lack of a centralized leader in either of these strikes. Up until this point, while union leadership itself had obtained some degree of centralization, the actual leadership of strikers mostly fell to the strikers themselves. That would change on July 1st, 1892, in the small Pittsburgh suburb of Homestead, Pennsylvania. So, let's talk about why the Homestead strike is important in labor history. In 1883, Andrew Carnegie purchased the Homestead Steelworks and began to heavily invest into the plant's modernization. New infrastructure in the plant, such as an open hearth furnace system and gantry cranes, not only facilitated a large increase in steel production, but also allowed for the production of specialized steel products that could then be sold at a much higher price. At Homestead, the specialty was steel armor plating for the United States Navy. These two factors, increased production capability and increased price point of the final good, meant that the Homestead plant paid dividends for Carnegie Steel. The same, however, was not true of Carnegie employees. As a matter of fact, as the productivity of the Homestead mill rose, the wages of the Homestead workers actually fell. Enter the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers, also known as the AA. After their foundation in 1876, the AA worked tirelessly to organize steel mills in western Pennsylvania. Though it was far from their first rodeo, their most important clash with management at the Homestead Mill came in June 1892. In 1881, Andrew Carnegie installed a man named Henry Clay Frick as the president of his company. Frick was vehemently anti-union, 
and so when the AA's contract at the Homestead Mill was set to expire on June 30th, he demanded that the new contract stipulate a 22% decrease in wages. If the deal wasn't accepted, he postured, then Carnegie Steel would no longer recognize the union. He had insurance, too. Frick had ordered the Homestead Mill to produce a surplus of 119-inch steel plate in order to create an inventory that could survive a long-term strike. Unsurprisingly, no such deal was reached. So on July 29th, Henry Clay Frick locked out the soon-to-be-striking workers at Homestead. A lockout is literally when the operator of a place of employment locks the doors and prevents workers from entering. Carnegie Steel erected a massive barbed wire fence dotted with water cannons, searchlights, and sniper towers to ward off the agitated laborers. The strikers, under the leadership of a man named Hugh O'Donnell, decided that the lockout wouldn't soil their plans. And they then began patrolling the area around the mill, effectively turning the tables and locking management out of the plant instead. O'Donnell was the chairman of the strike's advisory committee, and elevated the importance of nonviolent protest so that it would be impossible for their employer to gain the moral high ground. But nonviolence on the part of strikers does not guarantee nonviolence on the part of authorities, as we've already learned. Homestead would not be an exception to this rule. The town around the mill began to function in accordance with a sort of martial law established by the strikers. Reporters were given identification badges, strangers were questioned as to their motives for being in the town, and then escorted outside of its limits. The members of the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers could smell it in the air. They knew what was coming. On July 5th, the local sheriff sent 11 deputies to post signs around Homestead demanding that the strikers surrender control of the mill. They didn't listen, instead choosing to round up the police and put them on a barge downriver to Pittsburgh. For Frick, that was the last straw. On July 6th, at 2.30 in the morning, the alarm whistle sounded at the Homestead Mill. 300 armed Pinkerton agents were on their way to take the plant by force. When they arrived at 4 a.m., thousands of strikers were there to meet them, and a firefight ensued. Like the Haymarket riot, we don't know who fired first, but the first bout left two strikers and two Pinkertons dead along with dozens wounded on both sides. Around 8 a.m., the detectives made another attempt at landing. This time, the ensuing battle ended with four more strikers dead and a number of other injuries. All hell had broken loose in Homestead, and that was just what Henry Frick wanted. The more chaotic the skirmishes became, the higher the chances that the governor of Pennsylvania, Robert Pattison, would send in the state militia to quell the violence. That afternoon, around 4 o'clock, the Pinkerton agents surrendered. What might seem like a victory actually began to unravel public support for the strikers. As hundreds of Pinkerton prisoners were paraded through town to a makeshift jail, strikers savagely beat a number of them in full view of the press. All in all, maybe not the smartest move. On July 12th, after lengthy overtures from the strike's leadership failed, Governor Pattison sent the state militia to reclaim the town of Homestead. The soldiers, unsurprisingly, sided with the Carnegie management that helped elect Governor Pattison. The next day, under state protection, mill operations began to resume thanks to a large number of African-American strikebreakers who had been sent in from across the country. Though this restarted production at the mill, in some ways it actually made the situation worse. On July 22nd, racial tension between the black and white workers exploded into violence. 
Management and the strikers could both agree on one thing. The strike needed to end, but on whose terms? It turns out it was management's. The final nail in the coffin of public opinion was sent home on July 23rd. Alexander Berkman, an anarchist unaffiliated with the strike, broke into Frick's office at the mill, managing to both shoot and stab him. He survived, but popular support for the strike collapsed almost instantly, and Hugh O'Donnell was deposed from his chairmanship of the strike committee, later to be arrested and charged with treason. When they needed it most, the AA got no support from other labor groups. The largest skilled labor union that could influence the situation, the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, which in 1886 changed its name from the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions, refused to intercede and advocate on the strikers' behalf. As a result, the AA was completely broken, and even worse, the Panic of 1893 saw similar wage decreases instituted in mills across the country. Surprisingly, though, the AA didn't die off. Though the homestead strike is seen as a massive failure and a significant setback for organized labor, the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers would go on to form the foundation of the United Steel Workers, an international general trade union with almost 900,000 members. So that's a little bit about the homestead strike. But I don't know, I kind of want to keep talking about iron and steel for a little bit. So if we're going to go chronologically, then the next event we can analyze isn't a case of state or corporate violence used against strikers, but rather something called Propaganda of the Deed, which is a political action that's meant to incite uprising or revolution. It's something that's really integral to the anarchism of the early 1900s. That means, you guessed it, it's time to talk about the 1910 Los Angeles Times bombing. But in order to do that, I need to talk a little bit about what's called an open shop. In labor terminology, an open shop is a workplace that does not require union membership as a term of employment. The opposite of this, a workplace that does mandate union membership, is called a closed shop. In early 1900s America, employer associations used devious and often violent tactics to push for the adoption of open shop policies. With collaboration from law enforcement on the local, state, and federal level, the goal of management across the country was to break the back of their businesses' unions. This much, though, isn't super shocking. Management has engaged in union-busting tactics since the beginning of organized labor. What is different, though, was the union response. The labor organization in question is the Iron Workers Union which exists to this day as the International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental, and Reinforcing Ironworkers. It was a powerful union, and had successfully organized nearly every iron producer in the United States. One of the largest companies they dealt with was the American Bridge Company, a subsidiary of U.S. Steel which produced structural iron for, well, bridges. American Bridge was not happy with the closed shop policy at their ironworks, and as a result employed increasingly radical anti-union tactics under the leadership of a man named Walter Drew. Their efforts were a great success. Over the span of seven years, ending in 1910, American Bridge broke the union at almost every one of their plants. In 1906, Drew's group, the National Erectors Association, convinced Superior Court judges to hand down injunctions against the strikers, banning the act of striking itself, as well as speaking in the street, quote, in a loud or unusual tone. The ironworkers responded to increasingly radical tactics on the behalf of management by
by electing two increasingly radical men to the highest post in the union's leadership, Frank Ryan as president and John McNamara as secretary. The newly militant ironworkers union resisted all attempts to force an open shop. Many times, such resistance was violent. Between 1906 and 1911, the Union engaged in a dynamite campaign and sent small bombs to over 80 ironworks around the country. Up until this point, nobody had been killed, but that was about to change. Now that we have the necessary contacts, it's about time we talked about the Los Angeles Times and the events of October 1st, 1910. Beginning in 1882, the newspaper that would eventually become the LA Times was published by a staunchly anti-Union Civil War veteran named Harry Gray Otis. He used the Times to successfully advocate open shop policies for decades. He was successful, and thanks to his efforts, Los Angeles remained almost completely Union-free into the early 1900s. This, however, posed a problem for the rest of California, particularly San Francisco, which was deeply unionized. Open shop policies in Los Angeles were destabilizing the value of union labor in the rest of the state. The only possible solution was to reorganize labor in Los Angeles. The largest impediment to doing so, it seemed, was the anti-union positions of the city's largest newspaper. You might be able to see where this is going. Unable to find a man he trusted, Union Secretary John McNamara sent his own brother, James McNamara, on a very special mission. On September 30th, James McNamara left a suitcase filled with 16 sticks of dynamite in an alley next to the Times' headquarters. He then planted two more bombs, one at the home of Harry Gray Otis, and the other at the home of Felix Zihandalar, the secretary of Otis's anti-union organization. The bomb at the LA Times building was placed in what was called Ink Alley, a storage area for highly flammable printing ink. And at 1.07 in the morning on October 1st, it detonated, collapsing a portion of the building and igniting a gas main beneath it. The explosion and ensuing fire killed 21 people who were inside the building working on the morning edition. Over 100 were injured. For weeks, calls to capture the bombers went unanswered until April 14, 1911, when a detective, William Burns, working on behalf of the National Erector Association, arrested James McNamara and one of his accomplices in Chicago. The following week, authorities raided a meeting of the Ironworkers Union and arrested John McNamara. The three men were then extradited to California to face trial. Clarence Darrow, the lawyer who earned a reputation in the Leopold and Loeb case, the Scopes trial, and the trial of Bill Haywood, reluctantly accepted the role of defense attorney. The brothers initially pled not guilty, but as evidence against them mounted and under pressure from Darrow, they both changed their pleas. Many in the labor movement either thought them innocent or thought them guilty but justified in their actions. So when James was sentenced to life and John was sentenced to 15 years, the two became martyrs for the cause of organized labor. John was paroled after nine years and returned to the Ironworkers Union to help as an organizer. James died in prison in March 1941 with John following in May of that year. While their actions might have made them heroes among radical circles, it caused irreparable damage to the labor movement in Los Angeles, and it wouldn't begin to grow again until the 1950s. I want to talk a little bit more about anarchist bombing campaigns in the context of the first Red Scare, but before I do that, I'm a little bit burnt out, 
So I'm going to segue into a different topic so I can get a little breather. The Los Angeles Times bombing was a despicable act of domestic terrorism, but senseless and unprovoked violence was not limited to the role of union radicals, as I think we've already learned. Nonetheless, I want to take a minute or two to talk about the murder of a labor organizer named Frank Little. Born in Illinois in 1879, in the first decades of his life, Frank Little found himself at scores of different places that would become hotbeds for union organizing. After the Panic of 1893, he went west to become a miner in California. A few years later, he left to work in the copper mines of Bisbee, Arizona. Side note, if you want to learn more about Bisbee and the infamous Bisbee deportation of 1917, check out episode 15. Eventually, Little joined the industrial workers of the world and set about pioneering organizing techniques throughout the West and Midwest. He quickly rose through the ranks of the IWW, and in 1914 was elected to the union's executive board. It was with this new authority on behalf of the IWW that Frank Little set out for Butte, Montana in 1917. As he was preparing for the trip, armed vigilantes in Bisbee forced over a thousand strikers into boxcars and sent them into the desert. Again, check out episode 15. Anyway, Little arrived in Butte with the intention of organizing miners in the wake of a disaster that had left over 150 men dead. He had a good amount of success in the small city, establishing a picket line and encouraging other trades to join the strike. Frank Little's string of organizing successes, however, ended early on the morning of August 1st, 1917, when half a dozen masked men broke into the place he was staying, room 32 of Nora Burns' boarding house. They bound his arms and legs and forced him into the back of a car. They then tied him to the rear bumper and dragged him down the street, in the process mutilating his body to such an extent that it scraped off his kneecaps. The next morning, his body was found hanging from a nearby train trestle. His skull had been fractured and a note had been pinned to his leg, serving as a warning to others who dare organize in Butte. It said that this had been Frank Little's first and last warning. It contained the initials of other union leaders that were supposedly the next to be killed. The message was signed with the numbers 3777, the calling card of the Montana Vigilantes. The origins of the number aren't certain, but its use by the Vigilantes means that it has a strong association with lynching. Some posit that the numbers are measurements for grave. 3 feet by 7 feet by 77 inches. The number currently appears on the patches of the Montana Highway Patrol. Nobody was ever charged with Little's murder, and speculation as to the identity of the six men runs wild even to this day. Over 13,000 people attended his funeral. His tombstone, nestled in the wiry yellow grass of Butte's Mountain View Cemetery, reads, Frank Little, 1879 to 1917, slain by capitalist interests for organizing and inspiring his fellow men. Unfortunately, Little's gains in Butte would not last long. Three years later, on April 21, 1920, guards from the Anaconda Copper Mining Company opened fire on an assembly of strikers from the IWW and the Metal Mine Workers Industrial Union killing one and injuring 16. It would come to be known as the Anaconda Road Massacre. Whew. All right, now that I've had that breather, on to the final topic of this week's episode. 
anarchism and labor disputes during the first Red Scare, a period that lasted from 1917 to 1920. The first Red Scare can trace its roots all the way back to, go figure, the Haymarket Riot of 1886, after which the public and the government began to become increasingly paranoid about the dangerous actions of subversive leftists. It's possible that the political pressure from the Haymarket would have dissipated in time, had it not been for the actions of an Italian anarchist, Luigi Galliani, and his followers, the Gallianists. Luigi Galliani advocated for the use of violence to achieve political ends, and he was particularly fond of a little thing called propaganda of the deed. For almost 20 years, between 1901 and 1919, the Gallianists carried out bombings and assassinations in the name of the revolution they were sure would follow. At the same time, under the leadership of Woodrow Wilson, the Creel Committee and the Bureau of Investigation worked hand-in-hand -hand to both disseminate xenophobic and nativist literature and sabotage leftist labor groups. The Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918 helped institutionalize American fears about leftist politics by making it an arrestable offense to criticize the government. It's important to note that in the context of the First Red Scare, the American mind linked leftist ideology to foreignness. This is supported by the fact that in 1918, President Wilson signed the Dillingham-Hardwick Act into law, which allowed the government to deport legal immigrants based solely on their political leanings. After the end of World War I, anxieties about German leftist agitators were replaced with anxieties about Bolshevik and Italian leftist agitators. As 1918 wound to a close, the labor situation in the United States began to deteriorate, with a massive general strike in Seattle taking place in February of that year. Though the strike lasted only five days and ended up failing, it had an important impact on the American psyche. It played to then-current paranoia about an American Bolshevik revolution. Almost immediately, the federal government responded by renewing the charter of the Overman Committee. Its previous mission was to investigate claims of German sabotage, but now it was charged with investigating, quote, any efforts being made to propagate in this country the principles of any party exercising or claiming to exercise any authority in Russia. The committee then suggested that those who had been against the draft and American entry into World War I had become Bolsheviks after the war laying the framework for the prosecution and deportation of a great number of Italian, German, and Russian immigrants. This is where Galliani comes back into play. In 1919, Galliani and his followers decided that it was time to incite a class war, and in April of that year sent out over 30 mail bombs to prominent politicians, businessmen, and public figures around the country. Only a few of the bombs functioned as intended or reached their final destinations. The April campaign resulted in no deaths and only a handful of injuries. To Galliani, that meant it was time to ramp up the intensity. On June 2nd, his followers simultaneously detonated nine bombs across the Midwest and East Coast. Each was filled with 25 pounds of dynamite and covered in metal slugs. The bombs were planted in Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Boston, Cleveland, Newton, Massachusetts, and Patterson, New Jersey. Once again, none of the bombs killed their intended targets. The New York explosion killed a night watchman, and the DC bomb actually killed the person that planted it. Yet, even though it wasn't successful, the Washington bombing is by far the most important, as it targeted the house of the Attorney General, 
Alexander Mitchell Palmer. Though Palmer and his family escaped unscathed, it practically destroyed the house and almost killed his neighbors across the street, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. In response to the attempt on his life, Palmer organized what were called the Palmer Raids, which resulted in mass arrests and deportations of Italian and Eastern European leftists. Whether or not they had any link to the Gallianists was immaterial. The targets of the Palmer Raids reinforced the idea that Italians and Eastern Europeans were undesirables and agitators. And as a result, a great many innocent people were swept up in the fervor and tried for crimes they did not commit. The most notable of these cases was that of Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, who were tried in Braintree, Massachusetts for a murder and robbery when they were obviously innocent. They were sentenced to death and executed by electric chair on August 23, 1927. The one of the people arrested and deported in the Palmer Raids was actually Luigi Galliani. It ultimately proved to be a pyrrhic victory for the Attorney General, who faced severe criticism for his paranoia and illegal practices. Earlier in the year, he had been floated as a possible presidential candidate, but the aftermath of the raids left him with a damaged public image that ultimately caused him to lose the nomination. And for all of that, he didn't stop the anarchist bombings either. They continued on for more than a decade. I'm going to wrap up this week's episode by saying that the methods employed by Alexander Palmer laid the groundwork for the McCarthyism of the 1950s, coincidentally the second Red Scare. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. It took quite a while to do this research and write it all up. So if you've enjoyed the show or thought it was interesting at all, I'd appreciate if you shared it with your friends and family and subscribe on your preferred listening platform. This is not the end of the Labor series. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to talk about next week, but it'll probably include the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, the second Red Scare, and maybe Hollywood's 1945 Black Friday. But there's really only one way to find out. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll tune in next week and see what I've got in store. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.